Good morning. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we are uh, taking a break uh, in our series uh, on 1 Corinthians. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, we have just finished chapters 12 through 14, where the author uh, is talking about the practice of spiritual gifts inside the church, specifically when they're gathered for worship, what we're doing uh, right now. And in the middle of chapters 12 through 14, he, he says, hey, listen, you've, you've got these gifts. You've got faith. You've got hope. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. He says that love should be the grid through which you live your life and you practice the practices that you practice. Um, and then next week, uh, that was last week, that's where we've been. Next week, we begin a three-week, our annual, what we call a Life Together series, where we take some aspect of what we hope our life together is marked by and we preach on it. This year, for Life Together, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of God, the life of the Trinity. The Trinity, who Christians believe God is, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We're going to see how our life together grows out of God's life together, and we're going to apply that each week to parish life, to parish multiplication, starting new parishes, and church planting, starting new churches. And here's what I'm hoping today. I'm, I'm hoping this text, I picked this text for today because I'm hoping it can serve a, a bit as a recap of where we've been, a recap of the greatest of these is love, and a preamble to where we're going next week, where we're going in life together. So let's begin like this. If you were to ask me uh, over the years, what's your favorite movie? I would have had one of three answers pr predominantly. Answer one, A Few Good Men. Uh, Mainly because of the ending scene, that finishing line, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Like, awesome. Answer two, uh, die hard. Um, but I can't quote any of the lines from that movie in church. Answer three, answer three, a love story from 1999 about an actress and a bookstore owner. Anybody know it? Notting Hill, baby, Notting Hill. Um, who's seen the movie? Guys, put your hands in the air. If you like the movie, men, keep your hand up in that air. All right, I'm tempted to have all the men who watched it liked it stand up, and I'm not going to do that. It finished with this memorable line. Um, let's do this. If you know it, when I start it, say it with me. I'm just a girl. St nobody, nobody all alone up here? Okay. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him, him to love her. Cheesy, I know, but as a junior in college, I teared up watching that movie at that moment. Aside from being memorable, it's also a reflection of humanity. It's this little picture into the human search for love. This innate longing that all of us have whether we find romantic comedies cheesy or not. This innate longing for love, to be loved, to give love. Where does that come from? I'm quoting somebody here, but here's where it comes from. The, the Bible begins with a marriage. The Bible ends with a marriage. The Bible is basically a love story. A love story that in the middle of it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. The Bible is a story of God's creating and redeeming love for you, for us, for me. And so here, here's my hope today. 
more, and I'll, I'll confess, it's not, we, we work hard to have coherent, clear sermons. We love preaching. We work hard at it. We're not great at it, but we give it our best. T- today, it's, it's a bit of a modified goal. I'm hoping today that we can just let this passage that we've chosen, kind of word by word, phrase by phrase, just wash over us. And some of us in here who need to just breathe, who need to just slow down and breathe, can breathe resting in the love of God for you and for us today. That's my hope today. And you might leave today refreshed with a little bit more of an enjoyment in what God says of you and how God feels for you than you walked in here today. So let's go. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved. Stop right there. Beloved. Beloved. This is what the Father calls you, beloved. And it's different than what we say about ourselves, right? Right? I mean, we've all got that kind of primary banner that we, that mantra that we know just kind of um, uh, uh, reverberates in our minds about ourselves, and we have these formative events in our lives that, that kind of shape how we see and understand and what we think when we think about ourselves. Um, I had a series of them in my life. I'll, I'm going to illustrate uh, one of them. I played golf in college a long time ago, uh, and uh, in golf, you have the starting five, and then you have everybody else. It's kind of like a basketball team. You've got the starting five, and then you've got the bench. But the difference is the bench doesn't ever get to play. And in college, I was always the sixth man. I was always the odd man out. I was always the almost good enough. And that, like, as silly as that sounds from 20-plus years ago, that's not true. Right at 20 years ago. I was in college 18 years ago. I'm not that old yet. Almost good enough became the mantra that just sits in the back of my mind, and it's been hard to shake. In fact, I haven't shaken it yet. Almost good enough. What do, what do you think? When, when you think about yourself, what do you think? What's the phrase? What's the word? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Disappointment, insecure, anxious, depressed. What, what is it? When you think about yourself, what do you think? Let me tell you what the Father thinks. Beloved. Beloved. And you know where that word beloved got used for the first time in the New Testament? Matthew 3, 17. This is the Father speaking of the Son. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Slow down and think about this. What the Father says about the Son, the Father says about you. What the Father says about the Son, the Father says about you. When God thinks of you, he doesn't think disappointment. He thinks beloved. Beloved. My beloved. Not almost good enough, beloved. Not anxious, beloved. Not depressed, beloved. How silly, in light of that, is it that we spend most of our time and most of our days creating an image that we want other people to believe about us. Creating an image is simply, when other people think of us, we want them to think this. When the Father thinks of you, he thinks, beloved, how silly is it to care what other people think of us? To be consumed with image and what they might say when they speak of us. 
How freeing would it be to re, to believe that, to actualize that, and be able to live that? I'd like to learn with you. Let's keep reading verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Love is from God. The very existence of love originated with God. And this is where we get to begin our preamble into next week. Michael Reeves has this uh, wonderful little book entitled Delighting in the Trinity, where he asks a simple and yet profound question. It's this, what, what was God doing before creation that led to creation? What was happening in the life of God? What was happening in the Father, Son, and Spirit before creation that led to creation? This is Michael Reeves' answer. God is, before all things, a father, and not primarily a creator or ruler. All his ways are beautifully fatherly. He is father all the way down. That is who he is. That's all he does, he does as a father. He creates as a father and he rules as a father. And so Reeves is jumping in and he's saying, hey, listen, you, you want to know what God has always been? He hasn't always been creator. He hasn't always been ruler. He has always been father. It's always been just a good daddy. That's who he's always been. And then he goes on to say this. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation, the existence of creation, is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. The Father so delighted in his Son that his love for him overflowed so that the Son might be the firstborn of many sons. You see, the the picture that Reeves just beautifully paints in his book is, is of this father that so loved his son and the son was so delighted in the father and the spirit so enjoyed all of it that this love just could not be contained and it just overflowed into creation. And love began with a father who loved his son and the son who delighted in his father. It began in the heart of God and then it float into creation and putting man in a garden who would then have children who have children who have children as the garden got expanded. And if you want to know why it is so painful and so wounding and so hurtful that, that, that when we think our parents think of us and they think anything other than beloved, it's because the love of our parents is meant to reflect this fatherly love that came in creation. That's why the wounds of a parent are so painful, fathers in particular. Because that love, that affirmation, that delight in a child is meant to be a reflection of the Trinitarian love and delight from the father to the son. And so when we think that our parents think, not good enough. It's not, not the child I really wanted. I wish you were more like your brother or sister. So-and-so, like, their kid is an athlete, wish you were. Man, straight A's for you know, your friend, why can't you make straight A's? Like, these are wounds that sit inside of us that don't just go away overnight. 
And in hindsight, at times, it can feel a little silly to think that things from when we're 6 and 7 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 20 still affect us at the age of 40, but it's true. They are deep wounds that last because they're wounds that are, that are coming out of a relationship that was meant to reflect this, this, this relationship. And they don't go away. But here's the reality. We're, we're, all, um, we're, we're, we're all walking in wounds from our parents. And our hope is, my prayer is, that, that, that the wounds that get passed down to the next generation might be the kind of wounds that lead them from imperfect fathers to the perfect father. Let's keep reading. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Another way of translating born of God is to to be the parent of or to be fathered by the father of those who have that father-child relationship with God. They're the ones who know God and know God. Whenever you see the word know, almost always in this kind of context in the scriptures, it's technical language for a specific kind of relationship, an intimate relationship, one, one where you don't simply know who someone is, but you know them. It's the, if I could illustrate it, it's, it's the difference in uh, I, I, I know you and I know my wife, and I mean something different. Can I get a witness? Amen. It's that kind of difference. I know you, I know my wife, it's technical language for, and it an intimate relationship to have God as Father isn't simply to know who God is and to believe that there's a God out there. It's to have an intimate relationship with that God. It's to know that God loves you as a good Father, as a good Daddy, not transactionally, but simply because He does. I, my, my kids don't have to do anything to earn my love. I can look at my kids, and I can look them in the eye, and I can tell them, hey, Daddy loves you. You know why He does? Because He does. I love you because I love you because I love you. It's to know that the Father would look at you and say, my, my beloved, I, I love you because I love you. Stop, stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to achieve it. I, I just, I love you because I do. And listen, when you stumble, I, I'm not screaming at you. I'm not overflowing in anger because you took a step and then you fell. But to steal an illustration, it, what, what parent out there what parent out there looks at their 12-month-old who's starting to stumble, starting to walk, who then falls and screams at them? None. Not a single parent out there. If you as a parent do that, you should not be a parent. No? Y'all disagree? Okay. Now, what do parents that you, like you cry and you high-five and you hug one another that your child has taken a step? That's how the father, like when you stumble, they just keep taking steps forward. He's not screaming at you. He's delighting that you're trying to take steps forward. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love, this is a bit of a warning. Not a bit of a warning. It is a warning. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So let me start with what this text is not saying. This verse is not saying that if you are loving, you therefore no, God, it is saying that if you lack love, this is evidence that you don't. One commentator put it this way. A person not, cannot, cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. Why? Why is this the case? 
Because God doesn't just love, God is love. And to, to encounter the God who is love and not become more loving, this is not a statement of comparison, but one of progression. Right? It doesn't mean that if you uh, look around the room, you look across the aisle, you look in your parish, and you go, man, I'm not as loving as that person, therefore I must not be. It's a statement of progression. That when you encounter a God who is love, you become more like that God, which means you become more loving. And it's important to note that it says God is love, not love is God. Significant distinction there. God is love, not love is God. When love becomes our God, we make all kinds of foolish decisions in our life. We rush into marriage. We smother other people. We live in a radical insecurity for what we don't have. And here's what happens when love becomes our God. It undercuts any chance at experiencing the thing that we so desperately want. God is love, has eternally been so, and out of that overflow he created. And it's that love that we long for, desire to experience and know and live into, but he didn't stop there, verse 9. And this love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love made manifest. Love made manifest in sending a son, made visible. Love became visible in the sending of his son. Hold on to the visibility. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Love made visible in sending his one and only son, the son in whom he delighted. And so here, here's a, a question that I have is um, how, how is love, creation, love, and sending, how, how are those connected? Reeves, again, says it like this. The Father loved the Son before the creation of the world, and the reason the Father sends him is so that, so that the Father's love for him might be in others also. Just, I'll read the rest of the quote in a second, but just stop and think about that. The reason the Father has always, eternally, perfectly, richly, deeply loved the Son. And the reason that the Father sends the Son is so that the love that the Father and the Son have might be shared by others also, might be shared by you. This, that is why, not this, that is why the Son goes out from the Father in both creation and salvation. That the love of the Father might be for the Son that the love of the Father for the Son might be shared. The same love that overflowed into creation overflows into the sending of His Son. The same reason, creation sending, that God might take this eternal love that He has eternally possessed and share it with others. And if I could go back for a moment, back to 1 Corinthians. When, when he says, hey, listen, the, these gifts that you have, they're for the common good. And love is to be your guide. This is the love that he's talking about. This eternal, unending, rich love of the Father and the Son. This kind of Trinitarian, others-oriented, always giving for others love is a love that's to guide our practices and our community together. Why? Why? Why did the Father overflow into the sending of his Son? So that we might live. So we might live. There's an age-old debate. Um, it, it goes like this. Are people good or are they bad? Are they basically good 
basically bad? What, what is humanity kind of at its core? Is it basically good, basically bad? But that's, that's not really um, how, the, how the Bible talks about humanity. What the Bible says is that we're basically dead and that Christ makes us alive. Ephesians 2 uses that kind of language. You see, Robbie Zacharias says it like this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And because he came to make dead people alive, that longing for the rich and full life sits at the core of all of us, and, it, and its understanding inside of that is a search for love. Because the rich and full life, the life that is defined as being alive is one where you experience the love of the Trinitarian God. It's a search for love. But here's the beauty of the Christian story. Here's the simplicity and the beauty of the Christian message. This is what makes the Christian message different than all other philosophical or religious um, ideas out there. Here it is. Love found you, not the other way around. Love came for you. Love made its way to you, not the other way around. You didn't do enough to get the acceptance and love of the creator. He, he created out of the overflow of his love, offered it to you, sent his son as a display of that love. Love found you, which is where he goes now. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My wife and I, Amanda, we, we started dating. I was, uh, I was 26 and she was not 26. Um, she was less than 26. I will not say the age. I'm just kidding. She was 20. Um, we did all the normal stuff, you know, talking on the phone, late at night, running up bills, yada, yada, stuff I would not do now, for sure. Um, we also did the, uh, who, who's going to say I love you first? Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who's going to say I love you first? It was obviously Amanda who did um, on our first date, which was so weird. I thought it was soon, but, you know, I got over it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who falls in love with who and says it first when you're dating is a, is a pretty big deal. Point of anxiety. But let me be clear about something. When it comes to God, there is no question. God loved you first. He loved you first. And I want this truth to just lift weight off your shoulders because listen, here's what this means. If he loved you first, and he loved you in the sending of his son, and that's where he's speaking of right now, that happened long before you existed. That happened long before you made mistakes in college. That happened long before you had nights that you regret. It happened before you had a past, and therefore is not contingent on your past. He doesn't say, beloved, because you've not done or done certain things. So you can just breathe over the mistakes that you have made. His love for you existed before before you had a past. And how do we know? He sent his son as a propitiation. What, what is that word? What does that word mean? It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. So a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor, which is one of the great paradoxes of the New Testament, that God's wrath 
The God averts, God's love averts God's wrath by pointing it to himself. But there's something interesting happening here. I, I think it's interesting. This word propitiation, it's used four times in the New Testament. Twice as a verb, twice as a noun. Both times it's used as a noun are in 1 John. This is one of them. This is not a verb. This is a statement of identity, not activity. His primary point here, his primary statement is about the identity of Christ. That out of this overflow of love, he came as something. He came as a propitiation. Out of that overflow of love, he came as a propitiation. And out of that, which is why he went to the cross. So out of identity, he went to the cross. He's not saying he became something on the cross. He's saying he came as something. And because he did, he therefore went to the cross. So this Trinitarian love overflowed in creation, sending his son into the world. And it's that love that sent him to the cross. This love, this love, love of his son, the love that sent him to the cross, it now, it creates a new and different and distinct kind of community. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here it is again. Beloved. That when God thinks of you, he thinks beloved. Beloved. I, I was tempted to just say that for 30 minutes. Beloved. I, I was tempted to say that for 30 minutes. I, I wasn't actually, but I, I, I so desperately want that to undercut what it is that you believe about yourself, what I believe about myself, that what the Father says is beloved. When he says it's beloved, when God thinks of you, he thinks Beloved. Beloved, and out of this, we also ought to love one another. When you think of others, you ought to not think rude, sarcastic, insecure, depressed. All of these things might be true, but our first thought of others ought to be the Father's first thought of others, and that is beloved. And let beloved, that first line of beloved, reshape how we engage and serve one another. Beloved, when you think of others, it ought to be not uncommitted. In and out. Beloved. And let beloved shape how we engage the uncommitted. Yes, you should be committed. And we want to lead you there out of love because you're beloved. Beloved. What does it look like to live this way? What does this love look like in real life? We don't have to guess for ourselves. We just read it a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Listen, you, you want to be a countercultural community? You, you want us to be a community on mission? You want to know how complex and difficult that is? Here it is. Here's the complexity of it. Live like that. Live like that. Be patient and kind. In your parishes, with one another, be patient and kind. Don't resent people because they have different views than you. Be patient and kind. And let that in our communal life together overflow into the public square. Like, you want to be different on social media? Be kind on social media. Like you want to be an alternate society? Just be kind. 
Go into our public discourse. Don't be afraid of conversation in the public arena. But when we have conversation in the public arena, be loving and kind. Be gentle. Don't get in a rage. Don't be resentful. Don't be irritable. You want to be an alternate society. You want to live a life. You want to be salt and light, to use Jesus' language. Live like this. Be kind, be gentle, be patient. Be loving. Be loving. Why is that so important? Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, if you're reading through um, John... Um, thematically in all of John's writings, sight is a, is a, a theme that's woven in there. But in this context, in this passage, um, no one has ever seen God. He's just going to kind of leap off the page like, where in the world did that come from? Like, where did that come from? It's out, of, it's out of nowhere. Where did this come from? What's it doing here? Here's what I think it's doing there. I think he's trying to make the point that in our love for one another, in our love for one another, you know what we're doing? We're making the Trinitarian love visible. In our love for one another, we're making Trinitarian love visible. Jesus in John 17 um, said that in our unity, in our oneness, in our love, we, we make the gospel known. We make it heard, seen. We make what is invisible, visible. This Trinitarian love that is perfected in us. And perfected does not mean that there are imperfections in the relationships of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The word means to be, to be brought to completion, to be brought to its desired end. That the love of the Father for the Son that overflowed into creation finds its desired end inside the church. In our relationship, in our love, the purpose of creation is that God would make a home among his people. The purpose of sending the Son, that God would make a home among his people, that the church is the living embodiment of God. The Father's purpose in creation and in redemption. So what does this mean? What does this mean for parish life? Life is a parish. Like every week we say, hey, um, at the end, if you're not in a parish, go back, find one, jump in. We, 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 we organize and live our life through what we call neighborhood parishes. What does this mean for parish life? It, it means that when you go to search for a parish, when you're in a parish, you're not simply making friends. We want you to make friends. Friends are good. They're friends of God. Having friends is good. But it means that you're experiencing Trinitarian love together. Perfectly? No. But you're not perfect, so stop complaining about it. And give yourself to others. When our first word about our parish is a complaint, that means our first word is not beloved. Give your life to one another and experience Trinitarian love together. And listen, it will never be perfect until Jesus returns. So just give yourself to it. What about parish multiplication? Why do we multiply? Why do we start new parishes? So that this Trinitarian love, so that the love of the Father and the Son that, that overflowed into creation, that led to the sinning of the Son, that, that it... That, that, that God was longing for all of us to experience might be experienced by our neighbors. We don't multiply parishes simply because our parish is too big, too many people. 
I, I don't have, you know, the, the kind of rich relationships inside of it. We do it. That's not necessarily a bad reason, but it's not the driving reason. The driving reason is this, that there might be neighbors of ours, coworkers, friends, family, who are outside the community, who we want to step in and experience the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, and that might draw them to faith. If you're here right now and you're one of the friends, the neighbors, the coworkers, the family who got invited, it might have been invited for that reason, and we don't want to do bait and switch. We want you to know that what we want is for you to find life and to find it in Christ. And so step in. Step in. Yes, it's, it's going to be awkward. That's okay. Step in. We start new parishes so that new people can find new life in Christ. And what about church planting? Why do we start new churches? So the triune love of God can make its way to the doorstep of every man, woman, and child in our city. That's why. That's why. My heart bleeds and breaks as the Father's heart bleeds and breaks for every man, woman, and child in the city of Houston. And we want to give our life to seeing that love make its way to their doorstep. Because through the church of God, God is searching for our neighbors. The love that found us is looking to find them, and it's looking to find it through you. It's looking to find it through us. It is the love of the Father found in the eternal heart of the God that led to creation, that led to the sending of a Son that has turned our lives in this world upside down. It's that love with which he calls you beloved. And so I thought I would leave us with a quote today in summary of Madeline Engel's book, Walking on Water. No amount of opposition stopped Jesus from working to change the world through love. Our hope today is that you would breathe. You would breathe. That you would just slow down. That the image game would just slow down for a moment. And that you would rest in the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, the Spirit's delight in the triune God, and how that made its way into your life. Now that redefines everything about you. Everything. There's nothing in your life untouched by that reality. Nothing. And one day, I will no longer believe not quite good enough. And one day, you will no longer believe what it is that you believe, and we will believe together that when the Father looks at us, his first word truly is beloved. Beloved. And that love that has found its way to us, would we join Jesus in working through that love to change the world? Let's pray. Father, you know that I've got mountains of insecurities talking about your love for me and for us. I, I know that I'm not alone in that, and so would you meet us where we are? Would you, by the Spirit, would you just draw near to us in our frailty and our imperfections and our brokenness and our longings for love and our unmet longings for love? For, for those of us who walk in serious wounds from our past, from relationships that were meant to reflect your love that just never really did, Would you heal? Would you take those wounds and make them scars? For those who 
simply would say that if this God is real, no, not me. I pray you would tell them that's not true. That there would be this gentle whisper right now in their ear that says it's not true. It's simply not true. That your love is deeper than the ocean for them. For our members who just, who just, I don't live up. Would they be able to just slow down and hear you say, I'm not trying to get you to live up. My son lived up for you. I call you beloved because of him. Just take a deep breath. Meet us where we are. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.